Docker is an open platform for distributed applications. Docker allows for standardized container runtimes and will be an important piece of infrastructure for many years to come. Every software engineer is probably going to need to learn Docker. But if you're new to Docker, the technology can be confusing and intimidating. What is a container? Why do I want to put my application in a container? Today's guest, Prakar Srivastav, wrote a long tutorial explaining the fundamentals of Docker, as well as a detailed explanation of how you can get started with Docker. Prakar explains why Docker is useful, how Docker works, and how you can get started. Before we get to that episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. We would love it if you signed up and gave us feedback on our lens of the world of software. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community, which is also getting quite popular, at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And Software Engineering Daily is also looking for sponsors. So if you want to advertise your product on the show or if you're looking for engineers for your company, Software Engineering Daily is a great place to get your messaging out there. Send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com if you're interested in that. Prakar Srivastav is the author of Docker for Beginners, a comprehensive introduction for developers looking to get involved with Docker. Prakar, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey Jeff, thanks for having me. In this episode, we're going to reiterate some concepts that we have touched on in previous episodes, and I think this episode will be a really great place to start for programmers who have not heard of Docker, or and they haven't worked with it, and it'll be a useful review for programmers who just have some exposure to Docker but they don't really know how to use it. So let's let's start with the obvious question. What is Docker? Right, okay. So so Docker, quite famous a while ago, and it's uh, inarguably one of uh, the one of the important open source projects that have been gathering a lot of attention. And uh, so Docker basically, I would say, is, uh, is, is a way where you can automate your deployment of software applications using containers. And I think the key word here is, is, is containers. And uh, so one thing I would like to point out is that people attribute Docker with the people who, as in, that they uh, publicized containers. And so containers is not, uh, uh, it's not a new technology, right? It's, it's been there for a while, an old Linux kernel. So there was an update in the Linux kernel which allowed OS-level virtualization. Uh, but I would say the Docker uh, commoditized the way of make it popular and make it very accessible for developers to try out multiple operating systems within the host operating system, uh, within the host operating system. So let me give you a use case to help you understand and why a developer would want to, you know, uh, check out Docker. Uh, so, so as a student last semester, I was just trying out this project where I was required to set up multiple uh, uh, multiple machines on my system and run sort of some, some network simulation. So, one idea could be that okay, I, I install VirtualBox or VMware, whatever your favorite uh, virtualization uh, tool is, and then run multiple Ubuntu instances, set up networking. Now, all that can be really complex, and apart from that, it can definitely take uh, you know take a toll on your system. So, I have a, let us say a four gig of a four gig of memory, and it'll be hard to you know set up multiple let us say five or six nodes. But that's what I want to do. So, in this case, uh, so 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 the doc doc comes along comes along and says that instead of having multi uh, independent isolated 
you know, full stack, full operating systems running from top to bottom as a virtualized, what you can do is all of them share the kernel and the only it provides something like process isolation so the good thing is that now on on it's it's very lightweight so the the upside of this is that on my machine uh, a standard lab a macbook pro or a laptop i can run like multiple multiple uh, docker containers it uh, from a developer point of view it's almost as good as uh, as running a virtual machine but it's like extremely fast and the good thing about docker is that they provide a very flexible and a very neat apis to do a lot of functions for example set up networking do volume sharing mount volumes transfer data within the within the containers right. so all of that all of that good stuff remains with you right so, so you're talking uh, about the strength of the apis and many people talk about these you know the flexibility of the APIs, but also there is the strength in the standardization of Docker. And you've written about this. You write that the key benefit of Docker is that it allows users to package an application with all of its dependencies into a standardized unit. So why does this standardization, like how does that differ from how containers worked in the past and why is standardization so important? Right. So I would say, uh, to be to be very honest, uh, so the standardization part is part of the container movement, right? So the way so, I, I, so the way to illustrate the difference is, let us say you have a Node.js application today, right? And it's it's a very simple application. You have Node.js and you have a database. Let us say MongoDB. Uh, and so you you have Git version control. You set up your application. You run everything locally. Everything is fine and dandy. You make sure that all your uh, dependencies are nicely nicely put in package.json, and you do everything that you can to make sure that once you deploy your code online to production, everything remains as same as possible, right? But again, you have to provision a VM, then you log on. Let us say you are using Amazon EC2, right? You set up a new VM, you, you uh, a new instance, you log in, you now install, uh, you set up the operating system, let's say an Ubuntu machine, then you run the packages, you install everything, update everything, install Node, then install MongoDB. So all of this gets quite uh, tedious. And the other aspect is that it might work. So let us say you have this MongoDB version which is running locally, but then that uh, different version is running on production, and now all of a sudden the application is running fine and is no longer working production and this is one of the most common complaints developer have that it, it works on my machine and there are a lot of jokes about this also i'm sure you've you've had your your portion of you've heard your portion of it <laughs> but the way doc yeah the, but the way docker comes in and solves this problem is that you don't now ship let us say your git repo okay you don't sh- ship your express.js app what you do is you ship your express.js app along with the entire operating system let's put it that way it's like oh, i'm oversimplifying a bit mm-hmm. but the idea here is to now bottle everything into one standardized unit, which is called a container. So now you don't deploy a Node.js app. You deploy a Node.js container, right, which probably is running inside Ubuntu or Linux Mint or whatever, or CentOS box. And that's what you have. So now you don't have any such sort of issues where you can say, Okay, so this version of dependency, let us say some apt-get version dependency is now not running on my machine, but uh, it, it falls on the production. This is where the standardization comes in. So rather than shipping code, you're now shipping containers. And that's and it logs down everything in one standardized unit, and that's where you can deploy. So the standardized part is basically is that uh, so the, the container is a standardized unit. So you don't have to necessarily go with Docker. You can use other container orchestration services. So now there are, there are Kubernetes and there's a lot of other services also where you can use these containers and deploy application. So this is where the great power of, I would say, containers comes in. Right. And we've had virtualization for a long time. And virtualization is in some ways similar to containerization. You know, you think about shipping an entire operating system often times in the past that would mean you virtualize the entire operating system if it like you know i know when i got started at several companies uh you know the way that 
uh, I would onboard with the company is the company would deploy a VM to be assigned to me and the VM would come with all of my, all the things that I needed. How does, how does a container compare to that? Like what is, what is new about containers that makes it more efficient than the virtualized premise? Right. I, so I think there's actually a very good uh, uh, image on a graph on, uh, I think, the Docker website, main website. I'll probably show it to send it to you so that you can link in the show notes. And that sort of uh, drives on the point. And I'll just quickly explain the, how, the, how the difference is. So, uh, so the way VM works is that you have your machine, let us say the server, right? And let us say that is running a host operating system. It can be Mac OS X, it can be Windows, or, uh, or it can be Ubuntu. Let us say it's running Mac OS X. Now, and you want to now run, let us say, two virtual machines. All of One is running Ubuntu and one is running, let us say, CentOS, right? What you do is basically you set up a hypervisor, in this case, which is emulated by VirtualBox. And then all these guest operating systems sit on top of it, right? So now you, so the layer looks like this. So imagine this as a set of pancakes on top of stack on top of each other. The lowest pancake is your server. On top resides your host operating system, which is in my case, let us say, is Mac OS X. Then you have a hypervisor, and then you have stacks of independent, isolated virtual machines, and each of which is running its own guest operating system. They have their own binaries, they have their own LS, they have their own CAT, or all these commands, right? Right? But then contrast this with something, let's say, a Docker. Now, the way this pancake looks in Docker is quite different. So, so you have a server and you have your Mac OS X, which is exactly the same. So those two packs are the same. But on top of that, you don't have a hypervisor running. You, what, what you have is that the, the Docker service, basically the container service, what it does, it's share the entire kernel amongst all these uh, uh, applications, but it provides process isolation. So if you think, so if you've been a Linux user, you know that you have, so one process is isolated from the other process, right? If you've, so if you've taken an operating systems course, or if you're just uh, uh, running application, I'm sure this is like very intuitive to all developers, is that if you run one process, it's not easy or it's more or less impossible to, so let us say a Python application, if you want to say share something with a Node.js application running on the same server, you need you probably need a user file system, you need a database, something of that sort, right? You can't just use the memory that is being used by some other process. That's, it's a Linux, the kernel provides, the scheduler provides full process isolation. And this is what Docker does as a container. So now you have a full container, which is running uh, its own, uh, it's uh, it's not running its own operating system. And that's where the, what should I say, the efficiency gains and the performance gains come from. So sharing the host operating system, but it's running a very small layer of sharing that kernel. And then running its own bind, uh, libraries and the cat command, the ls, the, US, the user share and everything. So that's how it works. So, so in order to put a finer point on how the, the Docker... Docker service, or the Do- I think it's the Docker daemon, con- daemon contrasts yes. with the hypervisor. Um, like, I, I, well, I, I think I think if we dive into that a little bit, it can give us an idea of how, like, how we're getting better economies of scale with uh, with with Docker versus a virtualization. Um, so the Docker daemon is this background service running on the host. It manages the Docker containers. It gives them process isolation, like you said. Give some more detail on the responsibilities of the Docker service, the Docker daemon, and how it works. Okay, so so the basically so so Docker daemon has a lot of uh, so it has it has a lot of other other things on its plate plate too, right? And the key, uh, I would say, the advancement is which provides this sort of container or uh, this container isolation is uh, is called the uh, is uh, basically was initialized by I think a couple of Google engineers. I'm not sure by uh, by us. Uh, a concept called C groups, and that's what allowed uh, deluxe containers to get full isolation. 
and so docker daemon does does so docker daemon to be very honest does a lot of other things but it's not only docker daemon that does this isolation it's provided by the linux kernel by the c groups feature i think it's now been uh, contrasted with something else i'm not sure of the exact uh, uh, feature in the, in the linux file in, in the linux operating system it does that but uh, docker daemon is for example responsible for managing your images for controlling your images for talking with your containers so it does a whole host of other things but the key isolation the technology that underlies that makes docker possible is the uh, the C groups yeah getting into the discussion of how we use docker and how we from a developer's perspective we should mm-hmm. define the term docker image um so what is a docker image and how do i build a docker image and what am i doing with that docker image Right. So Docker images is uh, so Docker images are basically like uh, I would say uh, on uh, what should I say is basically a snapshot of your of a, a particular state in in a container. Right. Uh, so think about so there are different kind of Docker images. Uh, so they are based images on which you build up. So let let me give you an example. I think it's best to illustrate using an example. Now, if you want to be, if you want to run a Node.js application, let us say, right. And I'm sorry if I'm giving a Node.js application again, again and again. I think uh, I think it drives off the point, right? Uh, right. So, so so let us say you want to run a Node.js application. What you can do is so the first thing you want is operating system on which to run. So the first thing you do is you pull down a Docker image. Let us say for Ubuntu. right so this is an image and on this image is basically uh, the uh, it basically describes uh, to docker as in how you can set up your file system and how uh, this entire container can be built so uh, containers are built using images right so so to start a container now you want to let us say start a ubuntu container on your system what you do is you tell the docker daemon or you do, use the docker command line uh, command line application that i want to start a container using this image now once you are, once you have started that container what you can now do is basically ssh into the system and use it like a standalone vm or any ssh uh, any v, uh, remote vm that you ssh into install libraries install node js so this is one way and then what you can do once you have set up everything and then you create a new image out of this so that way what you are doing is you are now containerizing everything into one sanitized unit right so so we talked about this initially so what this means is now you have an ubuntu image layer running and on top of that you have installed your dependencies node js packages all of that and now you want to build a new image and now i can call this my fancy chat application and this is a new image and now anybody who wants to for example run this uh, run this as a container they can just download this image and then get get started running now when they do that they don't have to install anything they don't have to install node js they don't have to install mongodb let us say they don't have they don't even need to have anything on their machine they just need to have the docker uh, client which is which will be functioning and then using this image they can have everything up and running right so this is one way of going about it but you might argue that this this seems like a lot of work right and that's true so the thing is that uh, so there are base images so the the image that we started out with which was ubuntu is a base image but there are a lot of other kinds of images also and since deploying a node js application is not the first thing that anybody's thinking of doing it's it's so common so people have already pre built images on which all of the dependencies already set so there will be a node js image and there will be a python image on which you can download it has almost everything set up for a python or a node js app and the only thing you need to do is just copy copy your code from your local machine to the container and that, that and you're done right that's that, that's the entire idea absolutely so, so in, in yeah. these child images they can operate almost like a git commit history so explain exactly. explain how we use child images in practice 
Right. So, so the way, uh, so if you think about it, right, so you have, let us say, an entire image, which is an operating system, uh, let us say Ubuntu, and you install one set of dependencies, then you install second set of dependencies. And now you use this image to create, so I use a Ubuntu image to create a Node.js application. And let us say I use a Node, uh, Ubuntu image to create a Python application. Now, the Node and the Python runtime are completely different, and I definitely need to install. But if you're a Docker, so think about it from the Docker demon point of view. If you're creating a whole new container, every a whole new image every single time, right? That's a lot of work, right? So imagine you have, uh, so one of my, for example, one of the repositories, uh, one of, if you look in the tutorial, so one of the Im uh, uh, repositories, images that I created is a simple Flask application. Now, that stands somewhere around six, 700 MB. Now imagine that you have a very simple application that takes 700 MB on your on your file system, and you're creating multiple multiple copies of it. Now that's very wasteful, right? You will say, okay, every time you're creating a new image, only when I'm just in, instead of installing Node, I'm installing Python. So what behind the scenes what Docker does? It takes various snapshots, like a commit. So in your code, what you do is basically you, you write code and then you commit to take snapshots. At this point, everything is working, and the commits help the Docker demon the the, the the Docker client decide that okay till this point I can share uh, the the idea is the same and from from that the from that commit onwards the history uh, the trajectory starts to diverge right so then so the idea of commit here is basically you add stuff to your Ubuntu image till a certain point and then you just sort of break it into a fork and where you add then Node.js dependencies and Python dependencies. So now you have two images, but they share a certain commit, a certain set of commits. So let us say it took you like 20 commits to get from a bare bones Ubuntu image to a fully functioning Node.js application. And out of which those first 10 commits were already built by somebody else, then you don't, then the Docker team doesn't have to remember all of that. And so that's where the shavings, uh, the, the, sorry, the savings in terms of, uh, in terms of the file system size and all this comes up. And then it also gives you a way to go back in time and say, okay, so I installed this uh, version of, let us say, Image Magic, which is a key dependency, right, for your application. You want to resize images, and that sort of failed. Okay, so I know that after installing this dependency, my container sort of bonked, but I want to go back to a previous state, and you can just do that. So that's that's like a very good thing where you have your infrastructure where you can keep committing changes in the infrastructure, and then making sure that you don't uh, shoot yourself in the foot by making a very big small change from which you can't revert back to. And Docker Hub is this registry of Docker images. Can I use Docker Hub to pull down images and compose entire applications from those images? Exactly. So that's that's exactly the point. So Docker Hub is basically GitHub for images, right? So the way you do that is you uh, people are sharing images, people are commenting on images. You can send, you can star images the way you do star repositories on GitHub. And the Docker Hub is basically contained two kind of images. So one other official builds, which is supported by the Docker by the folks at Docker. So what they do is they take the responsibility of maintaining, making sure everything's up to date getting the security fixes and so once you docker let us say you want to download an ubuntu image you can make sure that it's on the, the folks at docker it's updated and it's, everything is fine so you can use that as a base to build your images sort of images right but it allows docker hub also allows other users like me and you probably to share our images so for example if i want to create a flask application which i think is really cool and i want to share it with my friends so i can deploy that image on uh, not deploy i can share that image on docker hub and they just need that one command basically to pull it down and run, start running on the machine so it's extremely simple. Okay, and as we're exploring the actual usage of Docker, we should talk about Docker files. What is a Docker file? Yeah, so I think uh, the concept of Docker files uh, would not be alien to uh, users who are used to other uh, infrastructure management tools, but, but let's start from the very beginning. So Docker file is basically a set of commands, right, that uh, codify how you get from state A to state B in an image. 
right? So, so let us say again, I'll, I'll give uh, the already example which has been beaten to that by me, the Node.js example, right? So you have a set of steps that you want to install. I want to install. So first, I have Ubuntu. Then I want to install the latest Node.js runtime. I want to install npm. I want to install a MongoDB and probably some tool to monitor this application. So let us say you, it's it's like involved six, seven step procedure. Now you as a developer who's creating this image and sharing with his teammates, you know, might somehow leave the company, leave the team. And although you can definitely do documentation, but the idea behind Dockerfile is you can just write down these steps in a particular format in, as, as, a, as, a, as a syntax, right? Uh, which the Docker file as a syntax. It's a very simple domain-specific language. It's like very, uh, it's very intuitive. And once you codify that uh, uh, set of steps in a Docker file, what Docker allows you to do is use, it allows you to create a new image using the Docker file. So that you as a developer don't have to remember the pain of, you know, uh, remembering everything in your head and don't have to use data and external documentation. So the cool thing with this is now, let us say if you, uh, you go to GitHub, right? And you check out this very cool project. Let us say GitLab. Now, GitLab is another project where uh, you want to where you want to run uh, a Git server up and running inside your host company, right? And so they have their entire code base. It's fully open sourced. You, if you want, you can. What you can do is you can set up everything. It's a Ruby on Rails application. But the other thing they do is they share that Docker file. Now, an application which has the Docker file in public requires it's it's very simple. So you just download the Docker file and you just run. Uh, Docker build, and that's it. So the Docker file basically codifies all the steps you need to build the Docker image from scratch. So that's the idea. Great. And you can now share these Docker files with other people, and they can get the same container, container or the same image running within a, a very few steps. How do Docker Docker containers communicate with each other? Because I I need to be able to compose an application of multiple Docker containers. So how do I get these communicating with each other? Right. Uh, so this is actually, I would say, uh, a really important topic. And you will probably, uh, for very small, certain kind of images that are very uh, small applications, one Docker image would suffice. But the idea behind Docker is that since you want to standardize everything, you run everything in isolation and then manage them separately. And But if you're running things separately, you want some form of communication, right? Uh, so the way this happens is in Docker is uh, using something called Docker Network. So Docker Network is, is relatively a new feature, and it what it does is allows your applications to set up networking between containers. So let us say you start uh, one Docker container, and you set up that I am in this uh, network, and then you can start another container, and then say, okay, I want to be in the same network. And what Docker then does, it, al- is, it allows a bridge between these containers, where they can talk via, so each of them is given, have been given a certain IP, and then these, Im- then these uh, containers can talk to each other using that IP. And that's the entire idea. And uh, the the good thing is that the, the Docker network command is basically the main command that you use. And it does a not, lot of plumbing beneath the hood to make sure that you as a developer don't have to hard code anything in your application. So you don't have to remember IP addresses. You don't have to remember a lot of configuration. You just say that my app, this is my container. And this will be, let us say, a host called Elasticsearch. And whenever this uh, container comes up in a new environment, in a, in a network, then this is the host that uh, other containers can call it through. So that that I think is a very cool feature. You don't have to do all the plumbing, and you have to, you don't have to remember all of that stuff. And Docker does it automatically for you, and that's how basically you get containers to talk to each other. What are some best practices for how we should divide our applications into different Docker containers? Right. Uh, so so best practices I I'm, I'm sure. So this is this can this is definitely up for contention. But 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 the idea of Docker is basically to standardize everything and to isolate your dependencies, right? So that so let us say your application consists of 
what should I say, a search engine. So let us say Elasticsearch. And then there is your other application part, which is the web server. Let us say again, a, a Python or Node.js web server. So one way to do is, the one, one way to do it is you have everything in one container and you run it. But, but the problem is, again, how do you scale? So if you want to have, let us say, five containers, right? Your application gets popular and you have a, a good chunk of traffic coming on your website. Then if you just take multiple copies of these containers, and even though they're talking to talking to each other, that's not a problem using uh, thanks to our network. But you still have the same data. So you have uh, you have to make sure that the data is in one constant location. There's no stale data. And there are multiple issues with that. So what you want to do is you want to centralize location. But again, so Docker networks are cheap to run, right? So you run clusters of them. So then what you can do is you can have one separate set of containers running your Elasticsearch service. And then you have a set of containers running your web, web application service. Now, as a de DevOps uh, in, uh, person or as a developer, you are seeing, okay, so my, my Elasticsearch is working fine. There's not a lot of hit. Uh, traffic on the search service, but there's a lot of traffic uh, on the login as login page or whatever in the application. Then you don't need to sort of scale your elastic your elastic uh, search containers. You just only need to scale your Python application containers. And now you can do that independently. So the more independent you keep your containers, the easier it is to sort of scale each of these and manage each of these independently. Right. So the same way. So so that's the idea. It sounds like you just uh, answered the question of why Docker is often associated with the term microservices. Exactly, yeah. So, so yeah, right. So, so that's a good segue. So I think, so the microservices movement basically says that you want to, you don't, you don't want a monolithic architecture and you don't want everything to be one spaghetti and one monolithic application running with services, with service your entire customer base. What you want to do is you want to split these independently, probably in different programming languages, using different technology stacks. And then all of these orchestrate, and now these can be handled by one team. So you have probably one team which is running an, uh, which is running some user recommendation service, let us say in Scala. Then you have some other team which is running an authentication service, let us say in Java or something like that. And then you can use containers which uh, the, each of which is set up as an independent a container. And now all of these orchestrate between themselves, and these can be managed independently. And now, so keep in mind that it does not mean that every container needs to run on run on a machine of its own. There are definitely ways, and uh, there are ways to have one machine run multiple containers. So one might say that if I am running so many containers, uh, how do I make sure that I am using my uh, underlying machine right uh, effectively? So, so when I talk about containers, that doesn't mean that I am saying that you have to run one container, one machine. You can definitely have multiple containers. And then there are different tools to help you with that. So there's Docker Swarm, but unfortunately, I don't know much about those. Uh, so how they're progressing. So there are multiple tools which allow you to do container management, container orchestration, which is now called which one of those terms, where you have multiple containers running and you want to orchestrate these containers, how they work as a single whole cohesive unit. Yeah, we have an upcoming show that is going to touch on Docker Swarm, so we don't need to worry about that too much. But um, you have written about Docker Compose, and multi-container Docker applications do become easier with Docker Compose. What is Docker Compose? Yeah, so so Docker Compose is, again, one of the recent features, and I think after my tutorial was announced, they released a stable version. So uh, uh, a new update that uh, fixes a, a good sort of bugs. So basically, Docker Compose allows you to set up your multi-container application in a very, very simple way. Right. So coming back to the old uh, example, so if you have a Python application and you have a Elasticsearch application, and you want to make sure that these two are set up correctly, these two talk to each other, you have to run a set of series of commands to make sure that everything is fine, whether they are in the same network, whether the host configuration is matching in both the cases. But and it can be a bit hard. So you want to make sure that one of them 
both of them should be up at the same time. It should not be that your uh, container for Python application is running, but your container for Elasticsearch is down. That means the container will no longer work, right? Your Python application will no longer work. So then Docker Compose comes along and says that we have this very simple file called uh, docker-compose.yaml. It's, it's a, a standard, uh, again, a very simple file which, which you can specify that how my Docker application, uh, how my Docker multi-container application is going to be. So what you what you do then is basically in this, uh, in this file docker-compose, uh, you codify that these are my applications. This is these are how these are dependent. This is the host configuration for this. And with Docker Compose, it sets up the entire set of containers, the application, everything in one go. So now instead of managing ten containers using ten different you know uh, Docker commands, what you do is you just manage the entire application, which can now be composed of let us say five six containers using one one command, which is Docker Compose. So that so that's the benefit. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you mentioned this blog post that you wrote. You this is an epic blog post that I read through. It is really, really good. Uh, so th- this is a, this blog post about how to use Docker at a high level. What are the steps that you take the reader through in this tutorial teaching Docker? Right. Uh, so it's just a little bit of history. Uh, so so I so I'm currently a student at Columbia, and I took a class recently. Uh, on cloud computing and as a part of the course uh, a lot of students so uh, one of the projects was basically deploying and building an application on the cloud and what i so i've have i have had some significant experience working with uh, doing some devops uh, linux administration so for me the course was not that uh, uh, so deploying applications was not that hard but i would see the, i could see that some of my uh, most of my colleagues were really struggling. So they were used to running applications or system uh, on the local machine. But when it came to deploying, let us say, uh, their Python Node.js applications on uh, AWS or some other uh, additional ocean, they really used to struggle, right? And uh, so as a point, I saw that there's definitely a way, you know, to write something out there. And is there something that appeals to a, a people who don't have any expertise with uh, uh, managing Linux, managing containers, managing VMs, and that could be useful. And it could uh, eventually lead to uh, some sort of uh, gratification that, yeah, I have something up and running. So I think uh, certain kind of tutorials, which I've been, I use tutorials a lot, and I would say I'm a self-taught developer for most of the stuff that I do. And I think I find a certain kind of tutorials which are very useful are ones that give me sort of, sort of satisfaction at the end. Okay, yeah, I, I have something to show. Right, and so that was I. I felt that there was definitely a need for this in in the Docker community, and that's where I came in and I wrote this Docker curriculum. So, so getting back to the original question, so the way this curriculum starts is is uh, so the goal of this curriculum basically is that if you start it from, uh, run it from the start to the finish, you'll pro- you'll have three or four container uh, Dockerized applications running on the cloud on AWS that you can share with your friends. So it goes through a series of steps from the very basic, assuming no no, no prior knowledge of Docker or containers or Linux management or, or Linux tooling uh, of how everything works. And it starts on building step by step. Uh, so so the way this starts is we, we I start easy. We start with a very simple uh, image called the BusyBox image, which is somewhere around uh, less than 100 MB, where you can run multiple commands and see, okay, so now I have a container. I am interacting with it. I can probably do RMRF on the container and still everything is going to work fine. So just get, getting your hands dirty, right? And then we go on to building web, web applications with Docker. So we start with a static website, which is a very simple, uh, let us say, a portfolio application, uh, your portfolio if you want to build. And then we go on to building images, making changes in the images, creating your own Docker file, and then deploying this on AWS. So it's a very simple. So we start with static website, then we go into dynamic website, which is again a Flask in Flask. It's a very simple uh, uh, application which shows kittens whenever you ref- refresh the page. 
gifs gifs of kittens uh, so then we deploy it on aws within within a few lines of commands and how you do that then lastly we cover multi kitten environments because i feel that that's how uh, applications where people are building now are definitely not trivial they have multiple components there's hardly an application where you will see that okay this only relies on a web server right you at least need one data processes layer you need something like redis or you need some other caching layer somewhere in between and that's where i felt that a multi container environment would be useful and that's where i illustrate how we can build an application called which i call the sf food trucks so that application is a very simple uh, map uh, mapping application which uh, where you can search for good food good food to eat in uh, san francisco right and it uses elastic search as a backend to search to provide you with uh, uh, to power your search so it's a flask application again and it powers the search is powered by elastic search and i use docker compose to make sure to uh, illustrate to the uh, to the users to how we can build and manage a multi container application and lastly which i think is one of the highlights of this is we deploy all of this to aws elastic container service and we make sure and so that users can get a feel of if tomorrow they have an uh, a side project or any such project that they want to showcase uh, and they built by docker then they can within a few lines of code they can actually deploy this on aws and have something up and running very very quickly yeah you mentioned this idea that it 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 really makes for a better tutorial when people can really engage with the material and then have something to show for it at the end where they're like yeah i built this and it was really cool yeah. and and now i feel like i can bootstrap that to other projects so that's, exactly. that's why I think yeah. the tutorial was architected really well. What what are the aspects of Docker that you find frequently confuse people? Okay, I, th- I think one of the initial aspects of Docker that com- uh, confuses people is definitely the idea of images and containers, right? And people don't exactly know uh, uh, as in how, what exactly is an image? Can I run an image? What is a container? Can I, uh, so so the, the, the stuff that you talk about, Docker commit, that is something still not uh, a lot of people are, are unaware of. And that's, so that's for beginners. But for production, what I've read online and what I've spoken to a few friends is that uh, still running Dockerized applications, which consists of like hundreds of containers is still not a solved problem. There's still this, the good news is that there's a lot of tooling being developed day and uh, day and night as in a lot of people are very, a lot of smart people are working towards it, but there's still a lot of open questions and best practices that are still need to be uh, sort of agreed by the community that this is how we run big multi-container applications, how do we monitor them, how do we make sure that they are working fine, logs, security. Security is definitely another big aspect. A lot of people say that Docker, uh, a lot of people, uh, part of the community maintains that uh, Docker does not provide as much isolation as running full-fledged VMs, and there are some issues with that. And lastly, I think some of which has been uh, recently uh, been uh, released in Docker's third birthday was running Docker on other operating systems, which is Mac, Windows, and Mac. So before that happened, uh, the way you were supposed to run a Docker container on a Mac or a Windows is that you're supposed to download VirtualBox, and then it provisions a Linux VirtualBox, and then you can run containers on it. So, uh, to be uh, so, that's how it was uh, until a few few months ago, and then uh, uh, Docker came along and they made a very cool announcement. But now you can run fully native containers in Linux and in Mac OS X and uh, not Windows as of now. They are targeting Mac OS X as of now, and you can run fully native containers without any uh, hypervisor or any virtual box. So I just got a beta invite like a couple of days ago. So I haven't given that a shot yet, but I'm really excited to see that how that's going to play out and it's definitely going to make it extremely simple for users to get started with docker which i think as of now has been a little bit of uh, uh complicated yeah uh, so i'd love to talk about some of the slightly more advanced topics around uh docker 
Um, <clears throat> one concept that comes up in every conversation I have about Docker is the idea of a scheduler. What is a scheduler? Okay, so scheduler at a very high level from an operating system point of view is basically a daemon or, or something that is, that schedules how the CPU's, CPU's time is going to be managed, right? So you have multiple processes running and it sort of interleaves between processes to make sure. So let us say you have a process and it, it's waiting for an IO operation, which can be a network call or it can be a database request or it can be asking something from the file system. Now, each of these things uh, take different orders of magnitudes of time. A network call might be orders of magnitude slower than, let us say, asking something on the file system versus can be really, really slow compared to asking something from the memory. So the way, so rather than, so if you process, you're running a process on your operating system and asking for, uh, let us say, on something of network, then rather than stalling, uh, making your application, making the process, making the process wait, and the entire halting the process, uh, operating system, what the scheduler does, it it schedules some other process, for example, to uh, some other process to make sure that by the time the other process is waiting, some other process can come and do its job. So it it does a very fine job of making sure that the CPU utilization is as much as high as possible. And definitely there are other kinks to how a scheduler works, but that's how it works on a high level. Sure. And going to an even higher level, um, you know, there are these different schedulers that uh, have entire companies or products built around them. These things like ECS and Mesos and Kubernetes and the uh, the unit of atomicity that many of these schedulers use is the container to, uh, you know, when, when they think about like, okay, how, what are we scaling up and down? What are we, uh, what are we allocating resources to? So, uh, what is new about these types of schedulers? How does, how does a scheduler on the level of a distributed operating system dealing with containers, how does it differ from, you know, the, the traditional type of operating system level scheduler? Right. Okay. So, Right. So if you zoom out a bit, basically at the operating system level, you have everything run within one machine, right? And you have processes again running within machines. So there are certain sort of resources that the operating system knows about. I have this much memory, I have this much CPU, this much file system, and that's what you have to share. Right, but on a distributed system level, these things are now running on a different set of clusters. So rather than now having one machine, you have let us say hundreds of machines. Uh, so. In that scenario, what you need to do is uh, so let us let's sit, let's talk about a very simple example. You have this so you're running uh, a company and you have this big database of let us say logs that you have collected, right? And now you want to run some analytics jobs on this. Now, if if you write and your go to app uh, uh, way to solve this task, probably write a MapReduce job and you use your favorite Hadoop uh, Hadoop distribution to set this up. Now, within Hadoop and within all these systems that are running, uh, so what you do is you spawn, let us say, 10, uh, 10 systems. It can be a container. It can be a VM. And now you run this job and within you tell Hadoop, okay, I have this much data and I want to run these many jobs, right? And then the scheduler kicks in and then it has to make sure that I schedule my jobs on these workers, on these clusters of uh, worker where one worker can, let us say, is a machine and how these are orchestrated or managed so that I can utilize my resources efficiently. Now, obviously, in this, if you're managing, if you're a big company, right, you have this team of users who are using this cluster. So you want to make sure that if I'm running my job, it should not be the case that everybody else is halted. So it can be so. So typically, analytics jobs or those kind of MapReduce jobs are uh, sequential. So you probably want to have run a map step, then a reduce step. And I'm just talking about MapReduce, but that's how it generally happens for other kinds of uh, big data processing also, right? 
So what you want to do now is while your other aspect of one job is running, you want to give free resources for some other job which has been scheduled by some other user to make sure that my CPU is not idle, my resources are not idle, and I'm utilizing everything uh, as much as I can. So there is where this is where uh, uh, schedulers uh, such as or management services such as Mesos and all these come into picture, where they make sure that the way uh, you have. Uh, scheduling operating system with the process uh, abstraction and management at the one machine level you are not now doing that for a multiple set of machines across a set of clusters so you as a user just uh, manage that one machine and the scheduler takes all the is responsible for all the heavy duty of how everything is being managed correctly yeah and so you mentioned the the job based workflows i think there's also you know i did the show about kubernetes recently and um, you know kubernetes is interesting because uh, in the writings about it, the Google Google who developed Kubernetes, they talk about how in the past, before Kubernetes or far before Kubernetes, there was there were these two systems, Babysitter and Job Queue or something. And basically, there are two types of applications at Google, which are you know those batch jobs that you just that you just talked about, and then there's the long running user applications. Like when I access my Gmail. I'm, right, right. I'm I'm spinning up a container somewhere on Google infrastructure, and that's long running. You know, it's gonna it's gonna live for for you know some undetermined amount of time. Um, and so I think one of the interesting promises of these distributed container systems is that you have a layer of infrastructure that takes care of thinking about uh, scheduling things to to both batch jobs and these long running jobs because they take different types of resource sets. Okay, right, right. That's correct. Yeah. So anyway, um, what's in the future for the Docker ecosystem? What do you see coming forward? Right. I think uh, for me, I am most excited by the latest acquisition of the of the Mirage team, right? Uh, so there are a bunch of, I'm not sure if you're tracking. So I think the project name is Open Mirage. Uh, so there was a recent acquisition uh, where the folks uh, from the team got were acquired by Docker. And I think they had a very key role to play uh, on the latest advancement that I was talking about, basically bringing Docker uh, native to uh, to the host operating system. And I think that that is one area where they definitely love to uh, see what uh, Docker has in plan uh, as far as... Uh, so I think uh, Docker as a company has one two, two uh, challenges. One is getting onboard new users because it's still a new technology. A lot of people, for example, even the folks that I talk to in my university, although everybody knows about virtual machines, very, very few people know about the containers uh, of the container movement, about how everything is going, or Docker. So I think what they want to do there is uh, get folks on... Uh, make it as easy as it's possible for people to get uh, started with Docker, right? And I think and as far as uh, fulfilling that goal is concerned, the recent acquisition is going to definitely be a long step forward. Uh, not uh, setting up virtual box, not having a big download and everything. I think it's it's, re- it's definitely a step forward. And I think and then on the other side, there is a lot of, uh, I would say, user education and tooling required to make sure that actually Docker is something that you can deploy in production to manage your very, very big applications. So uh, a lot of uh, criticism that I've heard is... Uh, from Hacker News, and uh, so it might definitely, it's, uh, uh, it has to be taken with a, a bunch of salt, is that all the Docker's, so it's, it's great for running small tutorial applications for running your uh, mini projects, but when it gets down to like hundreds of containers, then you have actually a big thing on your hands, and there's still a lot of open questions on how to uh, get around those issues and how to monitor. So I think, and this, uh, so I think the tooling on that side and some education on how that needs to be developed, how it needs to go, 
uh, is definitely something that I'm excited about. And plus, there's this other movement of, directly like you mentioned, Kubernetes is now a container management system. And then, uh, and the other uh, plus aspect that I see is uh, all the big, almost all the big uh, 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 infrastructure vendors. So AWS has AWS Container Service. They have Docker, their own registry. So let us say we, we spoke about Docker Hub, right? And you're not comfortable with sharing your images on uh, Docker. So you definitely have a private account, but you can also set up your own registry within AWS so that you don't have to pay uh, as in the net, if you want to minimize network calls or whatever the reason there is, privacy, security or whatever. So I think it's pretty interesting the way uh, this is moving forward. And uh, let's see uh, how the, but I, I definitely believe that uh, having my fair share of working with Docker, I think it's very, very cool. And the way it uh, makes uh, developing management, uh, developing and managing applications, it's it's extremely, it's a lot of fun to work on. You mentioned that you're at school and that the class that you took around cloud computing mm-hmm. and some people who are somewhat confused uh, should... Should schools be teaching container technology or, I mean, it sounds like if, if the people were already confused and containers weren't even involved, maybe containers are, would be going too far. But I, I mean, certainly there's a point where schools should be teaching Docker just like they teach Python or, um, you know, Git. Uh, so when do we get to the point where schools should be teaching Docker? Um, I I sort of stand divided on that issue. So there are two kinds of classes typically. So one kind of classes that you take are computer fundamentals class, right? So that can be your algorithms class, your operating systems for networks. And in my in that case, it might make sense to introduce something as advanced as Linux containers. But again, from not from I would say an application point of view, right? And uh, so if it uh, helps the student understand on how the advancements in the operating system and how these are moving, what kind of technology, what kind of uh, how computer science problems are required to be solved to have containers and what problems are it solved. I think that is something interesting from a student point of view. But teaching them Dockers or something uh, so application-specific might be a bit... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if that is required. I think as a, as a, as a uh, student uh, who's studying computer science, it's more important to build the fundamentals. And since I had the fundamentals from the previous classes that I've taken, it's just a matter of being aware. So the class that I took, for example, uh, cloud computing class, it's more hands-on class which aims at teaching... Uh, teaching these concepts and that is where something like this could be useful but i'm not sure if that's something as uh something as application specific like docker should be a part of the curriculum that's what i feel mm, okay yeah. what kinds of feedback have you gotten about your docker tutorial well the feedback has been positive i think one of the uh, most uh, the common thing that i've received till now is people really like that they have deployed something on the cloud and which is what they felt was missing from a lot of other tutorials and uh, and the other aspect is uh, so a lot of people have said are able to set up Docker containers and run a machine or run a, run an application local host, but getting from there to having an actual URL that you can share with your friends is a long way off. And there is there was I would uh, the, from what I heard is a significant gap, and and there were no much uh, resources on how to bridge that gap. I think that's where my tutorial hit a sweet spot and it sends a box through each and every step very, very carefully on how you can with screenshots, uh, with, with everything. Uh, I think it sort of uh, encourages the user to go through the tutorial and learn how everything is done. Great. Well, Prakar, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and um, I think your Docker, Docker tutorial is awesome. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. 
anybody learning Docker should check it out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure to see you.